The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hail and well met, operatives and friends of the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm Don Chisholm, here with my co-host Robin Patterson. Woohoo! And, and I'm our- Jeff Wood, yep. as a guest. I kind of yep. jumped in there. <laughs> That's okay, it's taking the initiative. What we'll be doing tonight, we'll be talking about a uh, small press comics and self-publishing. And that's why we've brought Jeff along, because he is the uh, creator of the comic Snow Bunny, as well as other works. And he's got a lot of insight into the history of small press comics up to the modern scene. Yeah, well, I'm pleased to be here, and I appreciate your bringing me on board, and uh, look forward to sharing what I know, whatever I can. I'm probably not the expert on this field. I can think of some other people, like uh, Ed Vick, who is involved in so many aspects of publishing and he's one of those guys that's kind of central so kind of like going forward you might want to think about having him on sometime but uh right here right here right now i'd be happy to share what i know cool and that's uh oh don't worry he's on a list (laughs) sorry we'll we'll hit him up later yeah exactly (laughs) he's on a list don't worry he'll be dealt with Guys and are of course, he's talk about the list. he's the uh, publisher of MU Press, and MU Press is kind of the outfit that I've worked with the most often for publishing my own work in the independent scene. See, that's interesting because I always pronounced it Moo. 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 Well, uh, their slogan is "Party until the cows come home, then <laughs> Moo." And that was um, Hal Hargett's little uh, addition to uh, MU Press back in the 1980s when they first came up with it. I think that was actually on some of his literature that he first came up with when he changed uh, MU Press to uh, being independent because before that it was his uh, the name of his small press publishing uh, venture. And of course, so originally Moo is, it is wasn't still, a comic book publisher. Originally, it was a small press uh, name, and it was for his little mini comics that he did, and they were like little esoteric mini comics and they didn't really have a theme they were just kind of little snippets of artwork and observations and it was called miscellanea unlimited mu which is where ah, we get moon yeah that makes huh. sense yep and that was back when he lived actually he was from texas and then he moved up to uh, seattle about the same time i did and that's where we met actually he lived about a mile away from me when we were both in seattle so it huh. was real convenient for me to just walk over to his house and uh, Ed's place was always the center of, of the comic book universe in Seattle, Washington. Every time I went over there, there was publishers there and comic book artists and people just hanging out. And there was always, uh, videos on the TV and there was piles of comic books around that you could read. And there's Chinese takeout within, you know, one block and all sorts of things. So it was, a it was always, um, very informative to go over there and meet the other people that he had kind of hanging around in his place. Very, uh, very social guy, very knowledgeable, pretty much knew everybody that was in the scene in Seattle and a lot of people elsewhere. 
you could say a name to him, like you could say, oh, uh, Reed Waller, and Ed would say, like, something like, oh, I, you know, back when I had lunch with him two weeks ago, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. You know, it was, he always seemed to know everybody and have good stories to share about them. Well, hold on. Was Seattle then the hotbed of, like, the indie comic scene in the 1980s? Uh, as far as I was concerned, it was. I was going to University of Washington in the 1980s in Seattle, and uh, I was actually in an apartment not too far from Ed. And what had happened was, as far as small press, uh, there was a small press uh, review zine called uh, Kevin Collier's Fandom Times, and he advertised that, as I recall, in CBG, which is the Comic Buyer's Guide. And he was re- reaching these mm-hmm. people that wanted to be in the comics industry but really didn't have an in. And what they would do is they would put together their own little self-published things, and they would send them to Kevin Collier. He would review them, give them a grade, make encouraging words, and publish this as a little um, publication, a little mini-comic. And people would buy it for buck fifty each or something like that and subscribe. And uh, as I recall, Kevin Collier was a journalist, so this was something that he could do kind of like on a semi-pro, semi-professional way. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of subscribers, and kind of he started to build this core of people that would were producing their own uh, photocopied fanzines. Right. And fanzines, as I understand it, like back in the you know the seventies, fanzines were literally they were they were fan comics of existing professional characters like somebody would have an idea for a great superman story so they would illustrate their own little superman story their own batman story or whatever and they would mm-hmm. mimeographic back in the day this was mimeograph when you <laughs> stick the papers in there and turn the handle and you'd make these uh mimeographs which as you recall they were kind of awful copies because <laughs> it was it was literally a, a template you'd put in there and you'd get ink everywhere and everything but they would fold these and staple these, and that was your comic book, and it was cheap. It could be done at home. There was no real serious cost to it. And then in the 80s, and I think this is where the big change in the way small press publishing happened. In in the 80s, photocopies, uh, Xerox-type copies mm-hmm. became the norm, and they became cheap enough that anybody could do it. And I think that was that and the fact that people were starting to get organized. There was this explosion of people doing their own they were still called fanzines, but they weren't necessarily, you know, kind of like these underground copies of uh, professional characters. But they were also people's original creations and their original comic book art. Hmm. And uh, we stopped calling them fanzines. Eventually, we started calling them mini comics because usually you would you, you'd take these these copies, you would fold them and staple them in the middle somehow. Yeah, a lot of saddle staplers were purchased at about that mm-hmm. time. <laughs> And uh, you would market them through places like Kevin Collier's Phantom Times. Now, and getting back to uh, Ed Vick's MU Press, Kevin Collier uh, one day called it quits. He says, uh, okay, that's it, I'm done. And uh, what happened is that um, me and several other guys were driving home from a local comic book meeting of uh, a group called the Cartoonist Northwest. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, like, man, somebody needs to, like, start publishing you know, a review zine or something so that everybody can know what everybody else is doing. I mean, this is back before the internet. There's no way for people to know unless there's some kind of hub where inf- information is shared. So uh, Ed Vick and I and Hal Hargett, another guy, we said, hey, let's 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 do one ourselves, you know. And we'll bring Wade Busby and a friend of ours as the uh, paste-up guy. 
and he, the, the four of us, I'll do, I was going to do letters and Ed was going to do editing and how Hargett was going to do the interviews and we'll do this, this uh, review zine and, and kind of pull together the small press publishing scene. And so we did for several mm-hmm. years, we built, uh, we uh, published the uh, uh, Comics FX, which stands for condoms. Or com- not condoms, but <laughs> comics. Examiner. That's a that's a that's a story for a different uh, time. But anyway, uh, people would subscribe to this tabloid, and it had all sorts of information. It had advertisements. It had cartoons. It had reviews. It had interviews. It had artwork. It had all this fun stuff, and it was about people who did their own comic books, hmm. uh, mostly small press and some independents. And that's kind of that's kind of my entry into uh, publishing. Self publishing was originally through Kevin Collier's Phantom Times and then through uh, working on as a part of the Seattle Four. We called ourselves the Seattle Four because there was four <laughs> of us who were kind of co-editors right. um, publishing this tabloid. Hmm. So anyway, that's long form, but that's that's how I got into it. Okay. Right. Now, how many issues of Comics FX actually got published? Well, I, we published like several years worth, and I think it was like two and a half years worth, and I think we only published like 14 issues in that time because it was kind of sporadic we published whenever we were complete with an issue and right. we all had different schedules and uh, ed set up an office and we all just kind of showed up at that office and we worked whenever we could and when we all felt that we were more or less comp- finished we'd run it down to the printer and print off a couple thousand of these on on newsprint and then mail them out mm-hmm. and uh so it was um you know kind of uh, it, there was more of them at first, but then it kind of started tapering off and, uh, eventually it, um, we quit publishing altogether and that was, it, it just kind of ground to a halt. But by that time there were several other independent review zines going on too. Mm-hmm. So we weren't the only, uh, game in town, but, uh, we did a lot of, um, we reviewed a lot of, of, uh, small press comics. We got to know a lot of the creators, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was a very, um, it was, it was a fun time. It was exhausting on one hand, but on the other uh, side, we met a lot of people. We gained mm-hmm. some notoriety. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So, and then uh, I believe, uh, Toivo Rovainen, another cartoonist in Seattle, he picked it up and did a couple issues on his own. God help him. You know, it, it was, <laughs> he, he was going to do on his own what the four of us couldn't really carry by ourselves on a part-time basis, but, uh, he did a couple issues too. Okay, well, Nothing? question. Was it distributed yeah. only through the mail? Is that the only way they actually went out to, like, just subscribers through the mail? We had subscribers through the mail, but Ed Vic had contacts uh, in the distribution industry. So we were, I believe we were distributed through uh, some of the, the big, um, uh, like, Capital and Diamond and also some of the newsprint ones. Because I remember walking by some of the... Uh, uh, magazine kiosks in the university district in Seattle and seeing the comics FX on the racks there. So I know he was able to get it out in several other places. I myself, I didn't have much um, to do with that. It was mostly Ed Vic and Hal Hargett. They knew people and were able to get this out. And I, I don't know. I I I just, sorry sorry to interrupt. I just say that because um, I think I actually remember seeing it in our local comic shops here in London, Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were around for a while, and uh, I I think we had at the top of our subscription we had like two or four thousand copies that were going out, which is not a whole lot. But um, these are people That's who enough. are really active. Yeah, yeah, it's it's enough to uh, keep going, and we got an awful lot of letters and a lot of mail and a lot of you know hmm. copies of review copies and whatnot. So a lot of feedback. That's very cool. 
yeah, it was it was fun for the time. It's it's interesting too because it sounds a lot like what happened in the sixties. Uh, that the underground comics, a lot of them started as um, reviews or parodies, or mm-hmm. even extra stories from other characters. And then the people who were doing them started doing their own things. And their method of printing and dis- distribution sounds like what you guys were doing with the small press stuff for a, lo- for a lot of it. Yeah, that was back in the mimeograph day. Yeah. And I also know people who actually did comics by, by they would actually take like comic book pages and they put several uh, carbon copies behind it and then trace it. Oh, yikes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that's very, very, very small print ones yeah. of that. Yeah. But I remember Ed showing me some of his like uh, mini or small press stuff from like the '60s, and some of it was actually large print numbers. But they mm-hmm. were uh, they were usually like drug or sex comics. <laughs> they were the underground scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a little bit different from the the small press uh, comics that I was familiar with in the 1980s, which were mostly like uh, people's serious attempt to be a cartoonist, like the people they admired. Yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering if that uh, came about because a lot of the, the companies, the undergrounds, ended up being distributed in, in like, the, the head shops, the counterculture stores. Uh-huh. And, I think you're right. Yeah. Where, that was, that was, they had a very limited distribution. You couldn't just put those in your average uh, magazine kiosk. They had to be behind the counter or something. Yeah, and, and even then it would be the people that were buying them would be the counterculture types, and that, I think, influenced a lot of the material and the people who got in. Exactly. That explains R. Crumb. Yeah. Exactly. His style was very indicative of that genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of the, kind of the lumpy, uh, sticky-looking art <laughs> that he was famous for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the irony was he started doing cards. He did, like, Hallmark cards and stuff. Uh, say again, I didn't hear that. Oh, with uh, with like Robert Crumb, he started doing like like greeting cards. That was that was uh, really yeah. That's where he he and then the comics that he s- started swaying towards it was because he was just really sick of the happy crappy family stuff. Oh, I thought he was making maybe uh, like uh, sticky drug and sex comics for the uh, Hallmark cards or something. I thought, <laughs> well, I haven't heard of those. But, uh, there might be a market for those nowadays. You never know. Could be. Hardcore, does everything else. Hardcore greeting cards, you know, <laughs> for the for the stoner in your life. <laughs> I could totally see that. Well, it'd be for uh, what is that? Four twenty. Uh huh. Those would be the perfect cards to send out. Yeah, four twenty uh, cards. Four twenty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt that there is something like that. Yeah. I'm not familiar with four twenty cards, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't think you give cards on 420, you give um, other things. Oh, say again, Don? Oh, because like 420, isn't that the, uh, like that's the the National Weed Day? International Weed Day, I think. Is it? Yeah, because that was... I don't know if it's the International Weed Day, but I know that 420 was, uh, I think it was the, um, it was the code, like the police code for um, a marijuana infraction. Yeah, and that was why they they decided, what is that, Jennifer? It's like April twentieth, yeah. Became, April twentieth, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of interesting. Now, um, it's also interesting too because looking at the 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 undergrounds, how when you started getting into the seventies, the eighties, a lot of them became legit. Uh, uh-huh. Like like kitchen sink came out of that tradition, and they became a regular 
like comic company, and I think um, Fantagraphics as well had its origins there. Really? Yeah, I didn't I, know that. I think I think somebody who who was instrumental. That was the the tradition they came out of. And I I think of that because a lot of the names that you're mentioning from from when you guys were all doing the small press, they're people who are still around, and they're people that. You hear from them; they're not big and flashy. But if you're into like the comic scene or even a lot of the like the nerdly arts, you'll see these people's names pop up a whole lot, even if uh-huh. you're not consciously aware. Huh? Yeah, Fantagraphics—they actually moved up to Seattle while I was living there. And really? They were not too far away, and of course, they all uh, knew Ed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was in, uh, Ed took me to one of their parties one time. I wasn't really invited, but I crashed one of the uh, Fantagraphics parties. And oh. uh, the one thing I remember from that, I don't think I've ever seen so much liquor in one place in my entire life. <laughs> but I, I brought a couple of bottles myself, and I went to the kitchen. And man, I tell you, there was there must have been over a thousand bottles in there. <laughs> Most of them either half drunk or half spilled, or yeah, <laughs> it was quite the scene. Whatever gets you, and it was all day. gone by the end of the party. Uh, I don't know. I didn't stay that long, Ed, and I didn't. We just kind of hung out for a little while, and of course, he knew everybody, and I didn't. But uh, we just kind of hung out. <laughs> yeah, because that's um, that's the thing I remember. Like when you had your website, and the people that would post on it, they were all the people like that I've been reading their comics for years, and. Um, people who'd done art for different role-playing games that I remember. And there were other people who had done other projects like, um, that I'd seen mentioned in, in like other, other places. Uh-huh. And I always thought that was interesting that you see that there's these, these waves that seem to come out of these groups and people insinuate themselves into the, into, into the industry as a whole. Uh-huh. Who uh, who do you remember from my website that would be a good example of that? Well, uh, Mike Segura has done a lot oh, yeah. of stuff that I like. I called him a smut merchant once. <laughs> that was like the high point of my day. <laughs> yeah, Mike Mike Segura. Uh, actually, um, I forget when we met, but his uh, style was a lot like uh, Stan Sakai, who did Usagi Yohimbo. Yes. And I don't know if you remember, like Mike Segura started doing a series called Hey Needers. Yep. I don't know if you remember that or have seen that. Yeah, I remember that. But it was kind of a anthropomorphic slice of life comic. Yeah, and it was a wonderful comic. And he quit doing it, and I, I kept kept kind of nudging him. I'm saying, "Hey, you should really do some more of that." <laughs> he also did work for MU Press, uh, Shanda the Panda. Yeah. Didn't Shanda the Panda actually come out from Antarctic Press for a while? I let me see. Was I, it the first issue? Was it the first issue that went through Antarctic Press, or was because I the other read way it around? with Antarctic Press? I didn't read it with Moo. I read like an issue or two with Antarctic. Oh, Press, I remember now, and I that's think... what I remember him from. Because it it started with Moo. I think the first started... issue came out with Moo, but they had such uh, yeah the one with the Schwartz and Hooter cover. Yeah, and uh, they had some production problems, and it took a lot longer than they thought it would, and I guess that. Um, Mike Curtis decided it would be better to go with Antarctic Press. I, I'm kind of peripherally aware of what happened there. I'm not. I, I really can't guess, but uh, it, it was removed from ME Press and taken to Antarctic Press AP. Right. Hmm. And I think now I, I think I don't know if Shanda is still being um, published or not. But they had. I know Mike Curtis had his own uh, independent uh, 
title or imprint for a while. I don't know if he's still doing that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Talk to him. Yeah, I don't know if yeah, he's Shannon. doing that. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, because he's uh, he's writing actually the Dick Tracy newspaper strip now. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Um, uh, I have seen his work. He was a big Dick Tracy fan, and he's a big Superman fan too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's also a writer. He's a professional writer. Yeah. He's written, oh, he's not going to like me for this. He he wrote some <laughs> comics, like he, he wrote uh, New Kids on the Block, the comic book for that. <laughs> really? I, I don't know if I was supposed to tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was a professional comic book writer, and he took some assignments that were, I guess, nobody else really wanted to do. Yeah. Cause that's, and that's like I say, he's well, one of Well, someone's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's a dirty job, but <laughs> there it is. Cause that's yeah. The other one I was uh, I was surprised that on your site was a uh, Kyle Miller. Oh yes, Kyle and I go way way back. He's another one of those guys that uh, I've known him for so long that I can't even hardly remember when we first met. You know, <laughs> and uh, Kyle Miller has worked in animation. He's worked on quite a few gaming platforms. He's done, uh, I think it was Steve Jackson games. He did yep. a lot of artwork for them. And then he did some artwork for me. He also did uh, he did some games for me. He did some little animated clips yeah. for me and on my site that is no longer up right now. That's another story. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was um, real prolific for a while. He's having some health problems right now, which is why we don't hear as much from him anymore. But uh, hmm. I, haven't, I haven't heard from him for quite a while now. Yeah, because he invented Uncle Al. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, he did the uh, Uncle Al for uh, Car Wars. Uncle Al. Yeah, for uh, if uh, are you familiar with uh, Steve Jackson's Car Wars game? No, just by reputation only. Okay, because what they they did the idea was it was in the future and 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 armed vehicles were a necessity and a sport, and Uncle Al was the uh, one of the big suppliers of parts equipment, oh, and it okay. was it was the extra equipment books that they did them like a catalog. Uh-huh. And Kyle was the guy who did all the art for all of those. I, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. He did several books uh, as well as uh, Car Wars, as I recall. As a matter of fact, I think he was like Steve Jackson's number one um, illustrator for a, the longest time. Yeah, up until the 90s when they got that Smith guy. Well, I think Mr. Miller, he started to work for, um, oh, I forget the name of the company now. He did uh, uh, like... Um, who did the pinball games? Like early, like mid eighties, late eighties. Bally. No, these were like online games, like uh, pinball oh. games that you would buy and play on your computer. Oh shoot, that I don't know. No, I'm afraid I don't. Yeah, but he uh, he was doing a lot of work for he would, he did all of the like the concepts for the uh, for the game boards, and he did the animations for them and. The actual mechanics of the game were designed by other people, but uh, he, he has, or he used to have, a gallery of the uh, games that he built, huh. or he designed online. I don't know if he still does that. Yeah. That's kind of a, an odd segue, but... <laughs> From comics to pinball. Yeah, I'm looking here. High-voltage software in Illinois, that's one of them. Okay. Because he did a lot, because he designed a lot of mini-games, as I recall. He actually was designing games that, uh, using uh, kind of off-the-shelf software uh, for his own site. Like mm-hmm. uh, Burger Builder is one of them, I remember, where it's a memory game. You have to, it'll show you a menu, and then you have to recreate the burger on the 
on the grill and you have an animated chef, you know, that's building these things <laughs> and whatnot. And you get points for doing it right. Right. And these were not these were not done for anybody else. These were not done under contract. These were just for his own amusement. Right. And for his own site. And that was a game I think creature. You can still find some of those online. Yeah. Yeah, gamecreature.com. Yeah, because that was also uh, uh, like a mini comic too that he was doing, wasn't it? Um, he did quite a few mini comics, but I don't think he had a character that you know. There's cartoonists who draw a little bit of everything, and then there are cartoonists who have like one or two characters or a scenario that they work on for years and years and years. And he was one of those guys that worked on a little bit of everything. Right. He did mini comics. Uh, he did real comics. I I don't know. I think he even did things like greeting cards, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. In advertising, right? Well, that's he's where, a uh, he's a graphic design professional. Yeah, because yeah, advertising is where the big money is. Oh yeah. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. <laughs> well, that that and, and designing games uh, that used to be like a six figure job, from wow. what I understand. Although I think it's it's less than that now because you used to have real uh, serious. Um, there wasn't as much competition for it as there as there is now. Yeah. But uh, hmm. he's been working in that industry for a long time. Hmm. So you knew Mike Segarra and you knew uh, Kyle Miller. Who else rings a bell there that you knew from my site? Well, there was a Jason Waltrip. Yes, Jason Waltrip. He did uh, Robotech. He did the artwork yep. for that. And he did a series called Metal Bikini. Yeah. He's, he's another one of those guys that has done a little bit of everything. And uh, last I heard, he was working on like three different web comics yep. for other artists. He would take over their uh, their uh, web comic and just do the artwork for their stories for their script that they they presented to him. And he kind of he's developed kind of this um, Archie Dan DiCarlo style, which actually works for a lot of the uh, slice of life comics out there. Yeah, because he's currently doing art for the uh, Dangerously Chloe web comic. Yeah, that's one I'm not familiar with. I haven't I haven't been following that one. It's actually pretty funny, and it's it's interesting because his style, you uh-huh. can you can tell it's him, but he hasn't changed any of the designs that the original artist did. Uh huh. Like usually, when somebody takes something over, even just the differences in style do that, and it's it's really odd that it's different but the same. I don't know too uh-huh. many people can do that. Yeah, you see that on more recent Archie comics that they're allowing their their staff to add a little of their own style. It used to be they had to do the house style and nothing else. Yeah. I'm on the uh, fans of Archie comics on Facebook, so I see a lot of different art by different artists. Okay. It's kind of interesting to see how they, you know, take these iconic characters who we all know and then give it their own, you know, slightly personal spin. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're an Archie fan? Not really, but I just knew some of the people that were doing the site, so I signed up for some weird things on Facebook. <laughs> so you haven't been reading the Afterlife with Archie series? I would like to find that. The thing is, there at least there didn't used to be a comic book shop convenient to me, but uh, one opened in downtown Vancouver, Okay, and uh, I need to visit more often. Right. Um, and by the way, I say Vancouver, I mean Washington State, which is in the United States of America, because... Outside of a very small regional area, if you say Vancouver anywhere on the West Coast, they immediately assume that you're a Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to disabuse them of that. Although it's funny, my wife grew up in Bellingham, which is just a few miles south of the 
Canadian American border. Well, a little more than that, maybe like a half hour south of that. Right. But she had a Canadian accent when I met her, which okay. I thought was kind of cute. <laughs> That's just an aside. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as a Canadian accent. I've never heard one. <laughs> well, I, I guess I hear it because I'm from Texas. Uh, you probably don't hear it. Me, I've been up here in the Northwest for about 25 years now, so less so for me. Yeah. No, but you I, sound I very Texan. Do I? Well, people yeah. still tell me that, although uh, I don't. I don't hear. It. I've been up here a long time, but uh, yeah, my wife used to say things like "sorry." Uh, <laughs> with, um, I think that's that's for Texan. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> it goes both ways. Yeah. Uh, up here in the Northwest, the accents are really flat, so people up here tend to notice accents from other regional areas more. Right. Hmm. But if I tell people I'm from Vancouver, uh, they assume I'm Canadian. And if I tell them, like when I was down in Texas, if I told them I was moving to Washington, they immediately assumed Washington, D.C. Because Washington State on the West Coast just doesn't exist for them. It's like yeah. it's mm-hmm. on the East Coast. <laughs> Which is kind of odd. I'm in Washington State, Vancouver. Typical <laughs> East Coast attitudes. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's changing now. You're seeing more big business move to Seattle. Like Amazon just moved up there, so I think they're going to be on the map more mm-hmm. or less. Actually, you know, speaking of the 1980s, grunge kind of put Seattle on the map too. Yeah, that was a, another big thing that happened in the 80s. Grunge for, and for Starbucks. Back. Yeah, and Starbucks. That's right. Starbucks is global now. They started down in uh, near the Pike Place Market in Seattle in the 1980s. Wow, that explains so. Pike Place Roast, actually. Huh? No, yeah, it's 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 this really old. Uh, kind of indoor-outdoor market down there, uh, kind of vegetables, uh, fresh fish, um, artwork, knickknacks, stuff like that, kind of like your typical farmer's market type stuff. And uh, there was a lot of little stores down there, Starbucks being one of them in the 1980s. Hmm. Weird. And now they're everywhere. <laughs> oh, I guess they're in China. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they are. I can tell you from firsthand, they are. <laughs> They're and you much... have Starbucks in Canada, or is that, uh, that's the, uh, is it Hortons? The, uh, have they uh, supplanted Starbucks, or? Oh, they'll, they'll never supplant them. No, we have them. both. We do have, we, we have get... Starbucks in, in Canada now. So you have your choice. You can do the homegrown coffee, or yeah. you can do the Seattle import. Yeah. Sort of. Really? Sorry, Don, go. Oh, no, I was going to say, because at least, like, here in Windsor, there's a Tim Hortons, like, every two blocks. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep, same with London. There is a street in, in downtown Portland, Oregon, and the four corners of the street, there's like three of those corners are Starbucks, and the <laughs> other one is a coffee people. So each of these four corners has a coffee shop on it, <laughs> which is remarkable. And there's a, um, uh, I think it's uh, one of the universities down there, not too far away, which supports, causes the foot trap traffic that will uh, support those places right hmm. <laughs> yeah here around our university it's all bars make of that what oh, you okay. will <laughs> they don't have the all night coffee shops they do but they're usually in the back of a bar somewhere <laughs> oh okay well then we you can get your have... irish sorry sorry to interrupt we don't have the same uh, i guess you could call it coffee shop culture here in canada in yeah. fact uh-huh. it's, it's really just starting right now at least outside of toronto um, it's, huh. we're just really developing the coffee shop culture slowly here. 
it's not part of our natural like to us a coffee shop is Tim Hortons, which is not uh-huh. the same idea as a, you know the Starbucks type environment. Uh huh. You don't go in and sit down and take your books and work so on your homework. It's taking its time, like but we're or, finally yeah. exactly. You're yeah. getting there. Yeah. Here it's more like a well, truck. We're getting if there. If it's in the back, yeah. If you have a coffee shop in the back of a bar, at least you can get like a Irish coffee or something. Then <laughs> I've always told Starbucks they should try that. Have the uh, the uh, alcoholic additives for their coffee. That would make them even more popular. <laughs> oh yes. Interesting. <laughs> okay, so why don't we put things back on the comic book track? So, Jeff, why don't you tell us about your comic? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, you know, uh, we were talking about the 1980s, and uh, that was one of the things that kind of facilitated my getting into comics was that not only were Xerox copy machines, kind of the uh, photocopiers, available everywhere, uh, are becoming more available and also cheap enough that anybody could access them, but the other big technological revolution was desktop publishing. And all of a sudden, you know, you didn't have to, like, type things out on a typewriter and cut them out and do photocopies and paste them all together to make your originals. You could actually do stuff online. And that, that was, you know, people take it for granted now. You can just sit down and do this kind of stuff on your laptop or whatever. But uh, back in the 1980s, being able to edit in real time without whiteout or some other, or starting over again, it was a, a big deal. And I've still got some of my old... Um, pasted up originals i mean we did the comics fx the old-fashioned way we had wax boards and we we printed out you know columns and we uh zoom copied um uh illustrations and we stuck them all down on the wax board and then we peeled them off and stuck them down again until it all looked good and then we took them down to the printer and he took uh photos they actually took uh, photographic negatives over those for uh, printing hmm. but the desktop publishing is what really uh made it accessible to like your average college student and uh that uh, enabled me to to do the comics that i did and i was just looking through my i i did catalogs for all my comics and i, I was looking through those and i did mostly uh anthologies science fiction anthologies and a few superheroes and whatnot uh, but I guess what everybody remembers and the one i'm kind of famous or maybe infamous for is is snow bunny mm. And uh, Snow Bunny was, when I first developed the character, I, it, it was kind of a, a joke. It was a one-shot thing. And this, this uh, I'm not, I'm, I tell you this story, but it's not like the, uh, I've told a, a lot of people, is that uh, actually the character was supposed to die halfway through their, their story. She's this uh, super spy character, and she's in this James Bond environment. And there's always the scene in the James Bond film where the villain captures the spy, the super spy, and he says, now you will die, you know, type thing. And, and, and nobody was actually going to die. And then some <laughs> of the other characters were going to finish the story. And I thought that was really unique and clever. <laughs> and this is where kind of like the whole concept of community comes in because everybody I showed it to, they hated it. They absolutely hated it. It's hmm. like, no. You can't do that, you know. She she can't die there. She has to she has to finish the story. So um, I rewrote. It was three chapters. I rewrote the final chapter, and she survives and she is victorious and everybody like that. Hmm. But um, I think Don, you were asking about you know how you know being in small press. How is that different from one of the majors? In that is that you get this kind of instant feedback, right? Because the people you're working with and the people who are consuming your 
your comic book, your little small press comic, it has a small press print run of below 100, maybe as few as 20 or 10. And all these people, they'll read through your comic and they will immediately tell you what they think of it, you know. <laughs> and that's how mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, that was the first story. And people kept asking me, well, when are you going to do more Snow Bunny stories? So I, I would, I would draw up these Snow Bunny stories and people would make suggestions. It's like, oh, you should do this and this. It's a, a super spy character. She's got to have, you know, gadgets. She's got to meet good-looking guys. She's got to meet terrible villains. She's got to uh, go to exotic places and have all these skills and adventures. And uh, and I always found that feedback really useful and, and very informative because uh, when you tell people that somebody's in a certain genre, they can immediately say, hey, we know this genre and this is what your character should do or has to do or what they can do. And uh, it helps the the whole shared world kind of develop much more rapidly than it would if it was a one-person operation. Hmm. Wait, when you say shared world, do you mean you had other people actually drawing Snow Bunny stories? Uh, not only did I have other people drawing Snow Bunny stories, but I also had people, other people doing the artwork for it. And uh, I also had people actually vo- volunteering like characters, like saying at one time uh, it was Sean Howell who suggested that she needed some kind of butler valet so he designed this little this little robot which we called uh whister and whister is kind of her companion and we found this this character very useful because not only was he there to do things for her that like if she's a busy super spy agent secret agent she's going to need somebody to haul the equipment and be there to help her get into her uh gear and uh her weapons and stuff like that but also, from a storytelling view, she could talk to Whister and tell him, you know, this is the plan, and here's the, re- you know, the recap, you know, and stuff like that. So it was, um, as a storytelling device, he was very useful. Hmm. And he was not my idea. That was, that was Sean Howell who came up with him. And, and there was lots of characters. I tried to keep track of <laughs> all the characters that people suggested to me, but uh, I've kind of lost track. Like, I think her sisters, Honey Bunny and... Snuggle Bunny, those were all suggested by other people. Her boss, Boris the Bear, was suggested by somebody else. Um, I just incorporated, we incorporated these characters, and then we fleshed them out as we needed to uh, for the story. Hmm. Wow, it's interesting. So when did the aliens enter into it? Well, actually, that's kind of an interesting thing. I, I, I tried to keep aliens out of it, but mm-hmm. um, in, with kind of like Snow Bunny and her people being the aliens on Earth, but they're a secret people that people are not aware of. And, of course, uh, Harry Potter kind of has the uh, the same uh, backstory now in that there's this, this secret society of people that the rest of the world doesn't know about. Uh, but Snow Bunny did it first, way back when, kind of a uh, secretive Illuminati-type uh, world society in the background. Right. Now, was it like that from the very beginning, or was that something that got added a little later? It was more like an anthropomorphic world at first, uh, more like Zootopia, believe it or not. You know, everybody's an anthropomorph, but then I decided, you know, we needed to expand out from there. and It kind of developed, it kind of evolved rather than kind of, it was a little bit random. And there are still elements in the whole gestalt that probably don't belong there, but uh, <laughs> uh, we... Uh, we let it uh, kind of develop naturally and go with it, whatever it did. Right. And I should mention, we I started 
in the first Snow Bunny story, I started doing the artwork for it in 1984. So I've been doing this character for over 30 years now. <laughs> I'm one of those people I mentioned earlier about the cartoonists who have like one character or one scenario, and then they work on it like their whole life. And uh, I'm one of those people. It was never planned. It just worked out that way. Hmm. People remember Snow Bunny. And, you know, I've had people like I've been at a convention and people will come up to me and chat with me and I'll tell them I'm Jeff Wood. And they'll say like, oh, I remember this Jeff Wood. He did a comic called Snow Bunny. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that was that was me. <laughs> Mia Culpa. And they're like, I had one guy. It was really interesting. He says, he says, like, you're Jeff Wood. And he started shaking my hand and he wouldn't let go of my hand. And, I'm like, <laughs> and he's like, oh, you did the greatest comic. It was very flattering. But on the other hand, I'm kind of looking around like. Hope nobody else is kind of watching this. The guy won't let go of my hand. <laughs> but, yeah, most of the time when people say you're Jeff Wood, people come up and punch me in the mouth. But no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so I have I have some notoriety just because I've been around so long, but also because of my writing for the uh, comics FX. Right. So people remember my reviews and stuff in there. And that's the other thing. A lot of the people that I associate with, they've actually been in cartoons for a long time, and they remember the comics FX, even though it, it had a print run that started in the mid-'80s and went through about 1992 or thereabouts, kind of petered on until then and then finally died. Right. Because it's interesting that that's the... Uh, it, it sounds like that's the thing that the professionals or the people who later became professionals remember. And then, like, uh -huh. say, the Snow Bunny stuff is what the fans would remember. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering... Well, you're probably right. You know, uh, the other thing about the 1980s was that, uh, and Snow Bunny was a part of this, it was kind of the development of anthropomorphic comics. Yeah. And uh, there was a big movement. I mean, at first, I remember the first comic book convention I went to was the San Diego Comic Con down in uh, uh, San Diego, and this was, like, uh, somewhere in the mid-'80s. And they had they had a furry party, and a furry party was just like a few professionals who happened to work in like animating uh, furry comics or anthropomorphic comics, and you know it was, it was very low key and it was it was very professional. And then later on, you know, several things happened. It was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles happened, yeah. and all of a sudden everybody knew anthropomorphics because of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that was everywhere. I mean, Burger King, that was their mascots for a while. If you, so anybody eating fast food would be familiar with TMNT, and they had action figures, and they were on television. Mm -hmm. So a big uh, leap forward for the that whole genre, that whole furry anthropomorphic uh, genre. Uh, but there was also other things that people who are not into comics uh, or who were more into comics would be familiar with, and that was... Um, One's comic books like Albedo, yeah. which was done by Steve Galachi, also in Seattle. <laughs> really? And it was a, yeah. yes, yes, he was in Seattle. As a matter of fact, he was a member of Northwest Cartoonists Association, which I used to be a member of, too, when I was in Seattle. Huh. And actually, I'd go over to Ed's house, and occasionally Steve would be there, too. Wow. But, um, yeah, he, uh, he did Albedo, which was a very serious, funny animal science fiction story. Mm -hmm. And it was, there was no fluff about it at all. He was... Excuse me. Steve was ex-military, and uh, he was drawing on his experience. And he was a drafter as well, so he had the technical drawing skills as well as the uh, military history to be doing this. And um, it was a big hit in the whole furry community. As a matter of fact, yeah. this this whole group of fans started calling themselves furry 
having been exposed to uh, albedo. As a matter of fact, there's a Usenet group called Altfan Furry, and it used to be called, as I recall, the original name for that was Altfan Albedo, and oh. then they changed the name to Altfan Furry. Uh, and again, Usenet News was the original uh, internet before the World Wide Web was really introduced. I think World Wide Web, what was that, 1994 or something like that, 93, somewhere in there. Yeah. But Usenet News was available online as early as 1984 because that's the first time I logged in. So that shows how how old Albedo was mm-hmm. and its impact on the whole uh, kind of uh, anthropomorphic cartooning scene. Yeah. So uh, a big thing there. And then the other one, which was very, very controversial for its time, was uh, Reed Waller's Omaha the Cat Dancer. Also anthropomorphic characters, but with Mm -hmm. uh, very adult situations, uh, uh, very explicit sexual situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, another big impact there, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a time like in the late 80s when a lot of anthropomorphic comics were like serious military comics mm-hmm. or they were X-rated comics or they were a combination of the two. They were like <laughs> X-rated military comics. Hmm. And uh, one example of that was a friend of mine, Tom Ver. He was doing a series called, uh, or he, he was originally to do the art for a series called Lesbian Foxes and Hover Tanks, which would have been kind of like your uh, pornographic uh, military hardware aficionado type thing. And uh, that developed out of kind of like the interests of the furry industry. As a matter of fact, uh, Reed Reed Waller's uh, success with uh, adult comics kind of uh, resulted in what we called the smut glut of the 1980s, the late 1980s, when there was like these tons and tons of, of sexual comics available in when people realized that you could sell a sexual comic and sell many thousands of copies more so than your average, you know, creator owned, uh, title, Hmm. then it's like everybody jumped on the bandwagon and all of a sudden you had these really crappy, poorly drawn and poorly nuanced (laughs) sex (laughs) comics out there. And it kind of, it kind of collapsed the industry for a while because, um, a lot of, uh, the way to get these things, a lot of them was, comic book specialty shops and they would order these things and then they wouldn't be able to sell them. And, uh, eventually kind of that whole market collapsed and it took down a lot of the specialty shops when it did. But, um, I remember those two things, you know, the military uh, comics and curiosity. the, uh, sex comics. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but that, uh, lesbian yeah. foxes in hover tanks, did that eventually become tank fixins? Yes. Um, there was some, uh, as I recall, there was some question about who owned the property. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it became Tank Vixens uh, later on, which mm-hmm. I think was published, but I, I do not, I'm not familiar oh, with it. Oh, it was published. It was published by Antarctic Press. I actually read an issue Sorry. or two of it. Um, well, oh, and okay. they don't, I mean, there's TNA, but there's no actual sex in it or anything. like. It's basically a weird comedy for the most part. Yeah. It was actually kind of okay. cute. There, There's two issues, and I remember that because that's, I, that's one of the my all-time favorite comics, just for the part where they explain how space travel works. How do they explain space travel working? Uh, there's like this two-page strip where essentially it's like a consensual reality. Uh-huh. So the whole idea of hyperspace and the stars going by real fast, 
it's just a tape that they play so that everybody's thinking along the same lines, and then that focus is what makes space travel work. Oh, cool. Kind of like the Calvin and Hobbes uh, uh, theory of space-time. Get your cardboard box out, and away you go. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly that. And the little picture of all the guys watching the tape going, ooh, stars, is like one of my favorite scenes ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen that comic, so I'm not familiar with that. It's it's worth it. Anyway. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, that then the other one that kind of finished out the 1980s for me was uh, Steve Moncusi's Fish Police. Mm. Because uh, I mentioned this in the uh, comments to one of your other uh, shows in that um, uh, people were buying a lot of these comics assuming that, um, you know, with the success of TMNT, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that uh, there was all sorts of uh, undiscovered uh, properties which would yield vast uh, popularity so they were buying up these comics these like every time there was a number one comic somebody would would purchase copies of it just in case yeah no matter uh, what the title was and also there were companies purchasing the rights to a lot of small press comics uh just to ensure that um they had uh, the the property rights in case that uh that property became really popular and there was money to be had from merchandising and advertising and action figures and all that other good stuff. But uh, Steve Moncusi's um, Fish Police was one of those that was optioned, and it actually became an animated series for six episodes, only three of which were uh, ever shown on TV. And uh, it didn't didn't go over well. As a matter of fact, uh, it was canceled, and that was the end of the whole free-for-all (laughs) <laughs> with the uh, kind of speculating on the comic book properties. Right. So it's, I kind of see this whole events. It kind of started with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's where it started in the early 80s. And then it kind of petered out after Fish Police. That's That was that whole little 1980s um, comic book, uh, small press independent scene yeah. right there in a nutshell. Because I think uh, when you talk the anthro stuff, uh, it seems like the Anthro comics have always been super susceptible to trends. Uh, yes, because you've mentioned the three the three big eras, and if if I can work backwards through them, um, yeah, and up until like the mid nineties, if you were doing an Anthro comic, it was a sex comic. Oh yeah, and I think it's because because of Omaha, and it's a shame because the Omaha comic it was really good. It was especially when Kate Worley took over the the writing. It was basically a soap opera, like you'd see on on daytime TV, but where yes. they, where, yeah, they didn't kind of shy away from from the actual like sex. But it was an interesting story. Um, it had interesting characters. Actually, as it went on, once you got past like issue six or seven, there wasn't very much sex or nudity in it at all. But that's what everybody remembered, and I think that's what um. After that, you got what nowadays people would think of as like furry and that, where an anthro character became cemented as a sex comic, like a sex story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you mentioned the military stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I know when Albedo came out in the early 80s, I know amongst the, the, the comic crowd, it was a really popular comic. And it was it was like super hard sci-fi, and you had a lot of the anthro stuff that came out at that point that was going in that direction until mm-hmm. until like you said the, uh, the when the Ninja Turtles hit, especially after the cartoon, that became the direction that everybody went, and there, there were so many like Ninja Turtles ripoffs, and 
if, if yeah, you, there was the uh, radioactive black belt hamsters, and there was the preteen dirty jean kung fu kangaroos, <laughs> and uh, geriatric taekwondo toads. I made that last one up. I don't remember what all they had, but I remember a friend of mine in Seattle. He was collecting all those. They called them three adjective and a noun comics. Uh-huh. They're all basically <laughs> ripoffs of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Which actually inspired um, the comic series Boris the Bear by James Dean Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he that that started out as this this um, teddy bear was going to rid the world of all these really crappy imitations, and he was going to literally like um, uh, perform sepia on them and cut them up. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was Boris the Bear. <laughs> Yeah, he actually he actually produced like three or four series up until I think the most recent one was like two two thousand five, and they are all Boris the Bear kind of related things. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, it's kind of I oh, I remember that so much that 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 again for that led up to the 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 black and white glut that wiped mm-hmm. out that wiped out like the independent publishers by the end of the uh, by the end of the eighties pretty much. Yeah, that was um, that was a big problem. Like in the late '80s, you know, especially with the money coming in from speculators, there was a lot of people trying to get into publishing that really had no skills. Yeah, in art or scripting or anything else. And there was these comic books that would come out, and the specialty shops would order a thousand of them or five hundred or whatever they thought they could move, and they were terrible. Yeah, and uh, it, it it created this 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 collapse in the market. But it did create uh, kind of a, an opportunity for some collectors. Like I had some friends of mine that would deliberately go out and buy all the worst comics they could find <laughs> on the shelves, like one copy of each one of them. Like uh, I remember, uh, one, uh, I think it was actually Steve Belashi who was doing this, but I might be mistaken. But he showed me one issue, which was uh, Inviso World. And okay. the whole comic was blank except for the word balloons. You know, there was no artwork <laughs> at all because all the characters were invisible. So that was the... In a, weird say, in a weird way, that's kind of genius, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly keeps down your overhead for artistic <laughs> requirements. Oh, man. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah that is. <laughs> so that, but anyway, you can imagine, you know, the uh, comic book shops, they, they read the descriptions, you know, in the, like, the, the big market books and the effort order based on that, and then there's people that buy a number one issue of anything just yeah. because it may turn out to be a hot property, and then the you know issue number two, you'd be lucky to sell any of them, and by number three, it's completely over, whatever it is. Yeah, there was a lot of that in the late '80s. Yeah, and then that's kind of what led to uh, I know for the comic shops with the uh, Marvel and DC moving in because those became like the the the, the sure money. Exactly, and then the speculators. There, there was, in. there was a trend back toward the uh, the big names. Yeah, up until the '90s when all the speculators like moved on and the whole industry collapsed altogether, pretty much. There were some some comic book shops that that did all right though, like Dark Horse. Uh, you know, they they produced a quality product and they were able to survive yeah. and become one of the majors. Antarctic Press was another one. I mean, they started doing like um, mini comic type stuff, and uh, now they're uh, they do some pretty um, large print runs. Like uh, uh, the more recent one that I'm aware of is their uh, Warrior Nun uh, property, and they've I've actually seen some um, 
some footage that they've uh, shot, uh, real life uh, footage uh, of um, really? potential scenes from a movie, a movie option. Yeah. Wow. I think wow. you can go to YouTube and look for uh, Warrior Nun, and these are like professional Hellboy type uh, movie clips. You know where she's in the church, and all of a sudden these satanic figures loom out of the darkness, and she uses swords and weapons to take them down. Wow, I had no idea. I thought that that comic had kind of died out after the image boom. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things, you know, um, these properties, a lot of them don't die, and they just kind of simmer for a while, and when somebody has uh, an interest in them and, and the ability to produce something like a movie, I don't think they are actually making a movie, but they were making, like, these test sequences, and they look, they're very professional, they look great. Right. Well, they're so probably there to generate Kickstarter interest for some crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. That's probably true. I'm not aware of this myself, though. But that brings me to another point, and that was uh, YouTube publishing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think mm -hmm. I mentioned this as well. Yeah, YouTube publishing for uh, for comic book type stuff. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of people who do like these little animations with YouTube, and they actually produce uh, their own serialized uh, cartoons and or parodies and or music videos. And some of them have uh, hundreds of thousands of hits, enough so that the income from advertising allows them to live independently, you know, that they don't have to actually work. They can just do their cartoons and their uh, their commentary and their music videos. Hmm. Huh. I'd never uh, mostly, heard of this. Oh, really? Uh, look up, uh, like, Minecraft music video or look up, like, My Little Pony videos. There's people producing original content for uh, oh, both okay. of those. Okay, huh. sorry, I thought yeah. I thought you meant they were publishing comics through YouTube or something, but you mean actual, like, They're, the playthroughs and animated stuff. Okay, I do know about that. And those people that are doing that are starting to move into original creator-owned content. Right. right. Also, I've seen some adaptations of some older things, like, uh, excuse me, I mentioned Morty the Dog the other day, and I happened to look on YouTube, and darned if there isn't uh, Morty the Dog <laughs> videos, somebody basically wow. reading and, and cheaply animating some of the uh, Morty, Morty the Dog sequences. Now, Morty the Dog was a, um, in a little uh, mini-comic by Steve Willis. Hmm. And it was kind of, um, kind of a satire, uh, social satire. And it was a little bit crude. Morty the Dog is <laughs> a, little. A, a naked dog with a very prominent penis. But uh, he shows up... Um, he did a lot of comic books, and he actually did. Uh, the reason I remember him in particular is because he did a just absolutely gorgeous um, interpretation of Hamlet using all of his Morty the Dog <laughs> characters. Okay. And uh, I, I was at UW. I was at UW, and I took in some of these mini comics featuring. Uh, they were actually, you know, strictly they took the the play Hamlet by William mm -hmm. Shakespeare, and he substituted his own characters <laughs> for all the parts. And he did a beautiful job, and everybody, I showed these to the people in my class where I, uh, at the uh, University of Washington, where I was going to school at the time, and everybody agreed he'd done a, a very uh, accurate job of portraying the play. Uh, so much so, like I've, our teacher notes that there's one scene where the characters are all on stage, but one of them announced that uh, somebody is arriving, and the, the professor says, this is an error. You know, William Shakespeare should not have put this into his story because this character could not have known that. Well, we looked at the mini comic, and Steve Willis resolved this problem by having the character look out a window. You know, oh, wow. Thinking, well, there's, there's a solution to that that <laughs> the professor teaching William <laughs> Shakespeare had not thought of. So, uh, 
uh, beautiful. I don't know if those are still available. <laughs> they should. Morty you can the find dog. Those <laughs> on on eBay or something, or just go to YouTube and look for Morty the dog, and you can see kind of the weird psychedelic uh, uh, observations that he, he uh, that uh, Morty the dog kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, represents. That's that's why him doing Shakespeare is just so weird. <laughs> And actually a pretty good job too. Wow. <laughs> Cause that, that gets to the thing that I've, I've always wondered. Cause I know nowadays, uh, for doing comics with web comics and that it's a big boom period, but it's that trick of how do you make it a career? Well, um, there's one person I know that's, that's done that and he's doing quite well. And that's Phil Folio. Mm. Uh, I know I knew Phil from Seattle. He was another Seattle resident while I was there. And uh, at the at the time, he was doing Myth Adventures right. uh, with, uh, I think, Robert Asprin, who is the uh, writer for that series. Right. And then a little later during the Smut Glut, he was doing Xenophile, which is spelled X-X-X-E-N-O-P-H-I-L-E, Xenophile. Right. Which is an X-rated comic sex with aliens type thing. Mm-hmm. And um, of all the Smut comics out there, it was probably the, one of the better ones because it was, excuse me, beautifully illustrated. Mm-hmm. But he's doing a web comic now called Girl Genius. Yeah. And I spoke to him at one of the uh, recent Emerald City Comic Cons in Seattle, Washington. And uh, he tells me uh, Girl Genius really struggled for a while, but they didn't make money on it until they gave it away for free. Mm-hmm. And huh. I go, her? And he says, well, what they did is they, they used to try to hide the web comic behind paywalls, and that didn't work. You know, there wasn't enough traffic. But eventually what they did is they made the webcomic absolutely free online. Anybody can go look at it. And then they sold the compilations, the graphic novels, uh, you know, for cash money dollars. Right. And they do this at conventions and they do it online and whatnot. And they're they're beautifully printed. And that's where they make their money. The wow. webcomic is absolutely free. But if you want the printed edition, it'll be twelve ninety five plus uh, tax plus uh, shipping huh. and- or whatever. And because there's just enough fans, because of it being free, even if only like say five to ten percent actually buy the printed versions, that's still a large number. That's still a large number of printed copies sold. I don't know what his circulation is, but I do know that he brings big cases of these comics to the conventions. Wow! And he has fans. As a matter of fact, it's, it's getting hard to speak to Phil Folio at a convention because if you go to his table, he's always surrounded by these these fans. And Girl Genius, his webcomic, is a steampunk adventure. So yes, all is. these fans, all these fans are dressed up in top hats, and they've got gears, and they've got <laughs> uh, lots of chrome and brass and wood mechanical appliances. You know, they've got phone, you know, phones made out of wooden boxes with crank handles, and uh, they've got um, firearms that have big glass bulbs on them, and. and brass uh, flared muzzles and whatnot. So they're all in character. And it's all very beautifully done. You know, the people that are into the uh, steampunk thing put a lot of effort into their costumes. Like I saw a girl uh, once, she had butterfly wings, and these are mechanical butterfly wings, and there's this spinning mechanical gear thing on the back that would make the <laughs> butterfly wings operate and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, that's that was his way of making money on it was to sell the, um, the the printed publication, and, and yet the webcomic was just kind of like the advertising hmm. for his printed publication. 
Right. Also, I imagine he's also making um, money on the merchandising. That's where a lot of webcomics guys make their money, actually, is on the merchandising side. I haven't seen any merchandising for that, but um, there may be that. Oh, I'm sure if we go to his site, there's probably a ton of Girl Genius stuff that's available. T-shirts, pens, cups, whatever, you name it. Yeah, I've seen some. Oh, well, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I've seen some stuff like that. Not a huge amount, but... Also, he's since he's got the website, he probably sells advertising space. Yeah. Yes, he can do that I don't too. Know if yeah. And if you're like the, uh, if you have things on YouTube, and this is the beautiful thing about YouTube is that uh, you can uh, allow YouTube to post ads on your site, mm-hmm. and you get uh, for every view that you get, you get a certain number of pennies, and you get enough several million clicks. You know, that's uh, quite a few pennies. Yeah. Although I don't think that. Uh, he has uh, anything on YouTube. Not yet. He might. Not... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there is something on there. I bet I bet Phil does have a YouTube channel. You know, Phil is one of those guys. There are certain guys that uh, you look at their properties and you're going like, why isn't this a cartoon, like an animated cartoon already? I mean, right. it could yeah. be. It's got all this beautiful uh, background and setting and scenes and characters and it would just make a great cartoon. I'd love to watch it. You know, it's one mm-hmm. of those things that you'd want to watch, uh, but um, yet it doesn't exist. Hmm. So huh. I'm surprised. There's, yeah. Yeah. It would seem like, you know, especially when somebody's done most of the groundwork that would need to be done for a new cartoon, that especially you could put together like a little, uh, like demonstration reel and say, Hey, this is uh, what the character in the cartoon would look like. Again, yeah, these days with crowdfunding, all Phil needs to do is say, yeah, we want to make a, like a short animated girl genius thing, and we need, like, say, $50,000 to do it or something like that. Within a couple, within a month or so, he'd probably have all that money or yeah. more. Given his, given his fan base, he'd probably have 500000 or something. Yeah, yeah, he could probably to put together that. a full internet series or something like that if he really wanted to. Always and put it on his, YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, that's a passive income. You know, every time somebody clicks on it, he gets money. Yeah. Well, you have to go beyond a certain number of clicks, I think, or views before you actually make money off it, really. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely correct. I mean, so that's... I don't doubt, I don't doubt that a, a quality product, though, would, would reach that. And that's oh, the yeah. thing. There's so much crap on YouTube that it's... <laughs> you know, if you post something that's, that's relatively entertaining and is well-made, I, I can't imagine that you, you wouldn't get a following. Yeah. Well, even then, though, there's so much stuff. I think a lot of it comes down to a crapshoot. Yep, pretty much. That's, yeah, there's a, an element of luck. That is that yeah. is true. But I think, you know, people who are lucky are the ones who work at it the longest and the hardest. You know, they're, part of that luck is just being there and, and keeping at it. Yeah. Mm. The ones who stay in the game the longest. And Phil is professional. Yeah. He's been doing this game for a long time. Well, yes, he has. Like, 82 or 83 was when What's New started in the Dragon. Yeah. I don't I don't remember his... I came in at Myth Adventures. Okay. I know he was um, a professional even before then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Myth Adventures would have been around that same time. He probably got the Myth Adventures cover gig because he was doing What's New in uh, Dragon, and, I guess. Maybe I yeah. have it backwards. No, because Myth, uh-huh. Myth Adventures would have been, I want to say, 84 or 85, somewhere around there. Yeah, early early 80s. Yeah. Okay. And he did, uh, 
he did like Buck Godot before that. Is, am, am I correct? Am I remembering correctly? I don't know if it was before or if it was uh, more or less the same time. Hmm. Because I, I, that was his uh, one of his properties, his early properties. Yeah, I remember those too. <laughs> yeah, Buck Godot was great. Yeah. But that's true. Cause I never collected that series, but I've seen I've seen images from it. It looks it looks interesting. Yeah, the one he did he did a there are a few original series like there's uh, Smith with PSI Smith and that, but the one that's worth buying is there's a series he did called the Gallimaufry, I believe it's called, um, and that is amazing. There's there's actually literally no other way to describe it. It's one of the best science fiction stories I've ever read. And it's like it was like a twelve issue series. I've got the original comic versions, but I think there might be a collection kicking around. Gallimaufry. I think it's called the Gallimaufry, which is a it's it's got this really weird long name. Um, I can put a link in the show notes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. Hmm. Gallimaufry. Yeah, it was called, and it's everyone like it's one of those things that nobody had read it so i would go around with my collection of all 12 issues i just shoved them into my friend's hand saying here read this <laughs> and then they'd all read it and they'd be like this is the most amazing thing ever and slowly it worked its way through my circle of friends at least here in london that way and so after that whenever we played role-playing games there would constantly be buck Godot jokes and, and uh, <laughs> stuff like that because yeah, it was just it was just so amazing and so influential. Again, it, to anyone who had read it, uh huh, familiar with it. Yeah, who are familiar with it. So really, if you get the chance, the Bacado, the Gallimar, I believe it's called the Gallimarfry is what they is the because that's the name of this giant space station thing. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, it came out, I believe, during the same time when like there were those shows like Deep Space Nine and Babylon Five. There was kind of a glut of science fiction space station shows for a while. And it was kind of like that, done a hundred times better, and only in twelve issues. Hmm. Uh huh. So he really <laughs> t- took that concept and really ran with it. It was truly amazing. If you ever get the chance yeah. to read it, it's a fantastic work. I wonder if uh, Phil has ever considered, you know, keeping all of his old properties in constant publication, at least in an on-demand situation. It seems to me that there's probably some money to be made there. Yeah. You know, people find his webcomic online and then want to find out what else he has done. And yeah. they could go and buy a copy of these these other books. Yeah. I mean, that's like free money because he's already put in all the uh, effort and uh, produced them. Yeah, it is amazing that they don't that all these artists, especially even the people you've been talking about in our show so far, don't just basically scan everything they own and stick it up on websites or stick it up on like uh, there's I think there's there's drive through RPG. I think there's drive through comics. Like there are sites yeah. where you can sell PDFs or EPUBs or whatever of the of comics that you put up. Yeah. Digital oh, yeah. editions. So or just do it from I'm surprised your own. more people are of the old guard aren't doing that actually. May, or maybe they, they might are. not be. They might not be aware of it either. I mean, you know, it, it, the whole internet thing is kind of a new mindset. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, that's it true. used to be. It used to be you did a publication, and then it was done. But with uh, web publishing, it's never done. You know, you can always go back and just revise it and then repost it. Yeah. That's very true, um, but. That also has an advantage, right? Once you put it up there, it's literally just sitting there passively making you money. Yeah. Yes. That's passive income. Yeah. Passive income is a wonderful thing. <laughs> That's that, that whole rich dad, poor dad concept. And I don't know if you've heard of this uh, publication. There's a guy uh, in America anyway who does these um, seminars. And it's called the rich dad, poor dad uh, theory. And basically it boils down to 
you must have passive income. If you're doing active income, that means you're going to work and you're punching the clock. And if anything should happen to you, like you call in sick one day, well, you're not punching the clock, you're not getting money. But if you have passive income, you could stay home and watch TV, you're still making money. And the people who are rich, they all have sources of passive income. That's that's what they do. They set mm-hmm. up these passive income. And as creators, we had to do the same thing. You know, we, we put our, our work into developing these franchises, and then we had to set it up so that we can make passive income from them. Yep. Just, and the web, the web, the Internet makes that easy, mm-hmm. you know. It gives mm-hmm. you that worldwide audience. It, it absolutely what? does. There's actually a podcast called the Smart Passive Income Podcast that I've listened to from time to time. And what he does is every week he interviews a different person who's actually making money through passive income. And talks to them uh-huh. about how they did it and how they succeeded at it. He's talked to people doing pretty much everything you can name. And uh, I think he might have even talked to... I know he's talked to novelists. I don't know if he's talked to comic guys. Maybe he's talked to webcomic guys too. I'm not sure. But he's, yeah, he's got like over, I think, 200, 300 episodes of this show. Of wow. him talking to people who hmm. have done that. And are making money doing it. And tips on how to do it. And there's a real art to it. There's an absolute art to the passive income thing. For some people can just literally stick stuff online and make money at it. Other people, they have to work at it a little more. But it it is an option. You're right. It's something that smart people actually, or people who can anyway, should be trying to do. It seems to me that if you went to a, you know, a site like YouTube and you put published something which was episodic, like you know every couple of weeks you published like a new chapter and it was like a short vignette or something of your characters and it was well done and it was interesting that over time you would accrue a pretty substantial following provided that you kept updating you know the the story mm-hmm. and uh eventually it would get to the point where it would be self-supporting because uh you'd have enough people watching and subscribe that uh it would it would continue generating uh more and more money all the time because you have a larger and larger archive of work available for people to click on mm-hmm. yep definitely hmm. um um so why don't we just call this you know part one and we'll have you back on to talk more about this stuff at some point in the future jeff okay that sounds good and that way i can review what we've uh, said and uh, uh get do some f- kind of self-analysis here and find out how i've done because i think we've done a pretty good job of covering like the 1980s independent comic scene which i think yeah. will be a great focus for this episode yeah. Okay, that sounds good, and we could talk about small press next time because that's one thing I didn't really cover quite as much. I talked about independence quite a lot. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely, and I think there's there's a whole like yeah, that's almost a whole other show in and of itself. Um, do you yeah. agree, Don? Yeah, because I think I think the idea we got to the point about the uh, publishing online, and I think in some ways that loops back to the small press thing, and I think that could be a whole other whole other discussion. Yeah, I think we kind of went full circle on this one in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, Jeff, you brought us right around. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Well-timed. Well, I tell you what, uh, I enjoyed uh, speaking with you both, and I um, hope I've provided uh, some input, some uh, clarity to some of the topics that we discussed. Oh, you absolutely have, and, sir. You absolutely mm-hmm. have. Thank you very much. Outstanding. Well, I look forward to speaking with you again. Um, and to you too. Uh, we hope to have you on the show again, Jeff. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Oh, outstanding. Good time. And um, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Okay. So on that note, I think we're going to bring this episode of the Department of Nerdly Affairs to a close. I'm going to usurp Don's uh, hosting duties <laughs> and uh, bid everyone a good night. Thank everyone for listening. 
And uh, tune in next episode when we'll talk about, well, it's a surprise. Holiday special. Holiday special. No, no (laughs) holiday special. On that note, um, good night, folks, and we'll, we'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya. See ya.